0: From the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas, just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th and G, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, CR Wooters.
1: Welcome to 14th and G podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. This episode, we're joined by our old pals, David Castignetti and Bruce Melman, to give us their quarterly update on what's happening in the political world. Okay, without further ado, here's David Castignetti and Bruce Melman. Mm. David Castignetti, Bruce Melman, welcome back to 14NG. Thank you, Suya Thanks. Um, I'm stumbling over my, my words to begin here. All right. And part of the reason I'm stumbling is because we are in <laughs> a wild time. You are, you are theoretically here to give us your quarterly update, but I can't let some of the news of this week go without asking you some questions about it. So we'll start with the really big news, which is Speaker Ryan earlier this week announced that he will retire at the end of, the ye- uh, of this cycle. Um, what's that mean? Let's go with uh, Bruce first.
2: Well, uh, it means uh, that after 20 years in Washington with a young family back home, uh, a uh, the, the kind of the quintessential perfect establishment reform Jack Kemp Republican has decided that it's a lot less fun being in Washington than it is being a dad. Makes a lot of logic. Um, it's not good news in my mind for the long term health of the party because uh, Ryan has been a positive force. People don't agree with everything all the time. but. He's substantive, and he's optimistic, and he's trying to uh, continue to move in a constructive direction in the 21st century. I think, uh, just to pick up
0: on that, CR, I think, to me, there's a couple of big lessons to learn here. Uh, The first one is never take a job you don't want. He was very clear from the beginning he didn't want this job. It became very difficult. I I agree with Bruce. I'm sure there are some family concerns that he has. He's a 48-year-old young man with young children who demand his attention. I get that. But, you know, when you take a job like that, you are committed to it, and you have to be committed to it 200% in order to succeed. I think the other piece of this, I think, that to me, is as you look to the future, there's two things to think about, right? One is the Republican Civil War is continuing. There's still the fight of kind of who is gonna be the new Speaker? How long is Speaker Ryan gonna be in place? Is he gonna be there till the end of the year or not? Who is the next leader? Is it McCarthy or Scalise or someone else? I think the other piece of this, and, and Bruce touched on this a little bit, the Republican establishment now looks very different. When's the last time you've seen Republican parties put in place tariffs on products? When's the last time you saw President the Repu- McKinley. <laughs> there you go. When's <laughs> That's the, actually the fact. When's the last time you've seen the Republicans add $1.5 trillion to the deficit? George all, W. Bush. All acceptable type things within the Republican Party right now, and that's not what the speaker, I think, was about. And again, I just kind of, I'm going to end where I started on this. Don't take a job you don't want. It is way too hard
2: to do it. Are you trying to suggest CR should not have come in as early as we asked to do this podcast? <laughs> yeah. so I, I, you know, I'll add my own piece, which is, there's a part of
1: this that the Trump Mm, craziness uh, that I just think it just wears on everybody, and I think at some point in time, I think he probably was thinking about he was going to leave at some point, and I think maybe this Trump stuff probably sped it up a little bit. Yeah,
0: I, I I don't disagree with you on the Trump stuff, but it's also a little bit. If you take if you're at a job you don't like and you don't want, like it doesn't matter who the president is, it's still a hard job to do, and not to mention the the, the what this president brings into that debate.
2: Well, and you know, Cr, sorry to steal it from you here, but. Another thing that you find is, it's harder than it's ever been to be a party leader. You know, if you go back two decades, let alone 10, uh, you had all of the tools of control that you'd need. The party controlled the money, the party controlled the agenda. These days, everybody's a publisher, everybody's got a platform, everybody's on social media. Ted Cruz is speaking to the world, uh, taking Mitch McConnell's ability to control things by what committees he's on very much out of his hands. All right, so we'll shift topics again, because
1: this is a, a crazy couple of days here. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg was just on the Hill for two days of hearings. I just wondered what your thoughts were um, as he wrapped up the Senate and House stuff.
0: Two things, I, I, to me, I think one is technology has changed. The Congress learned today, or yesterday, how technology has changed over the, over the last 20 years. And Zuckerberg was a big piece of that technological change. Uh, It was clear by some of the questioning on both sides that members are still trying to figure out what this means, how technology works, uh, some basic stuff that people in the Valley completely understand. That, that, That was very clear. When you have folks like Senator Kennedy, a Republican from Louisiana, talking about the need to regulate, that's not traditional Republican rhetoric. Uh, that's coming out. So you're starting to see people looking at the world a little bit differently. And I thought the the the, the quote that caught me the most was Senator Durbin's quote to Zuckerberg the other day. Mr. Zuckerberg was, uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, can you tell me where you spent, what hotel you were at last night? And he kind of hemmed and hawed a little bit and then answered and said, No, I'm not telling you that. He goes, <laughs> Exactly my point. This is about privacy, and how do you maintain privacy on a, on a difficult, on, a, on an open platform like this? So you, you're seeing that this is starting to come in, and, and people who don't necessarily talk about regulation are now beginning to talk about that.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I had two big takeaways. Uh, the first is that uh, retiring Senator Hatch of Utah is probably not heading to Silicon Valley to be a tech CEO. <laughs> uh, he asked a couple of questions that suggest he's not quite down with the new business models. Um, but the other thing, very much along David's lines, a lot of the tech industry has been saying for a decade now that data is the new oil. I mean, you take a look at the most valuable companies on the planet. They're information technology, data-driven companies. But when you think about that analogy further, uh, The oil industry, when it started, was very much the Wild West. You had John Rockefeller concentrating a lot of power and concerns about that. You had negative externalities, whether they're the geopolitical impacts or the environmental impacts. Uh, And these days in the tech sector, you're similarly seeing a Wild West where there's increasingly concentrated power. Uh, There are now externalities, whether they're the impact on elections or the impact on citizens that have policymakers' attention if data is the new oil, the question we have is whether or not the Cambridge Analytica situation is the new Valdez oil spill. (laughs) The the
0: only thing, if I may pick up on that for a second here, I think that the other piece on this is uh, uh, Facebook was forced to make some policy decisions over the last couple of days that they may not necessarily have made if it wasn't for the fact they were testifying, right, and coming out in support of some of the regulations that are in place in Europe right now. That's a big change, uh, both for Facebook, but also potentially the, the focus of what the Valley is going to care about moving forward, not to mention the political advertising legislation that's coming down the pipeline. You're going to see more stuff like that as well.
1: It's, uh, the one thing I'd add is that it felt a little bit to me like George H.W. Uh, George Bush and the milk. Situation. I don't know if you guys remember that, right? Scanner. Like, yeah, yeah, the scanner. Like, you this know, is cool. <laughs> yeah, like, hey, this is really cool. Yeah. And like, you know, most people have been on Facebook for, you know, eight years, ten years now, and 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 uh, uh, it was very it felt pretty clear to me that a big chunk of these elected officials haven't been and aren't super familiar with it. So, so I think to your point of the Wild West, you know, this is a new technology that both they don't understand and they don't really, they're not quite sure what to do mm-hmm. with.
2: Except they know they have to use it in order to help get elected. That's the big thing. Yeah, and the difference there, too. I mean, it hurt President Bush 41 because it showed he was out of touch with the average person. Mm -hmm. Uh, What David's point here, and I think he's right, is the challenge for so many of these great tech innovators who are changing the world in many positive ways is that... In this case, it's not just the elected officials, but it's also the public that really hasn't thought through what that's they signed point. up for. Yeah. yeah,
1: that's a great point. Yeah. All right, one
2: last uh,
1: super hot topic. Um, President Trump's uh, attorney, personal attorneys, uh, you know, was a subject of an FBI, FBI raid. Um, I mean, talk about we're in unprecedented territory here. I don't know what the question is other than, like, what do you guys think <laughs> about that?
0: I uh, you know, for the FBI to go in and uh, with a subpoena to get information out of someone's office or home, there's clearly to me there's something there. Uh, what that is, you know, time will tell, I think. Uh, we can all speculate, but I don't think at this point any of us know, but, uh, they, they clearly see something because they've gone through a process, and not does the FBI see something, but a judge who issued the subpoena sees something as well.
2: Yeah, I don't have any idea. The, <laughs> that's the punt. He's a wimp. He's totally punting. The, the Trump optimists would suggest this is proof of true fishing expedition, sure. and would never have happened to a Clinton lawyer. The the Trump pessimists, or the Never Trump, or whoever you would call it, folks. Uh, would suggest first by both the president and the lawyer denying that this was done at his behest they may have blown attorney-client privilege which otherwise would protect some of this stuff. Uh, and, uh, And just as a rule one of the lessons we've all learned in the modern era is everybody has emails, uh, texts, and other things they don't want. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I sort of feel like anybody on the planet, if the FBI gets all of your records, is guilty of something.
1: Yeah, that's probably <laughs> right. Okay, so now we'll move to our regularly scheduled program here. Um, I am holding in my hands here an actual paper version that's just when's the last time you (laughs) held a piece of paper this is just from Bruce's uh, (laughs) he loves paper Um, uh, of the new quarterly uh, update that the firm did and it's called Empowered America when you
2: represent Hewlett Packard you want people to print often (laughs) 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 thank you for printing
1: (laughs) and it's called Empowered America why the age of disruption may usher an era of reform Um, I'll ask a couple of questions about this you know you mentioned revolutionary tools Um, I the the people that jumped the most out to me as this these high school kids from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas uh... they grew up in a world where they could contact the whole world and they seem to be able to you know uh... engage in a national conversation pretty quickly right from where they are talk about that um, not necessarily the the, the, the Stoneman Doug, Douglas guys and you know I don't really want to get into guns so much but more like
2: you know your high school kids um can can organize in a way that would other people couldn't well so as folks who spend all of our time in Washington it's really easy to get short-term pessimistic it's a very disruptive chaotic environment Um, and uh, and voters are seeking change over and over they've lost faith in institutions but um, in spending a lot of time talking together and thinking about this uh, David and I are becoming increasingly middle and long-term optimistic you know and part of it is the recognition throughout history that revolutionary tools enable revolutionary times so Uh, And I don't know, David, you and I might not agree on the uh uh, awesomeness of the Protestant Reformation from 1517 but that was uh, enabled by the printing press and there's been there was a great documentary recently out called the hope and the fury I knew about I hated that printing press <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the the civil rights movement which was extraordinary but it you know dr. King was was putting maybe a decade into really hard slog a lot of heroes were losing their lives and yet it wasn't until TV covered them and they figured out how to use the revolutionary power of TV to have the whole world in especially the country, appreciate the struggle that things changed. And so for those who were frustrated at the disruption, what you're finding is Washington can't, won't, or shouldn't do lots of things, but leaders are stepping up, enabled by these tools. Everybody is now a witness. Take Black Lives Matter. You know, the, the what the civil rights television cameras were to the Dr. King marches, everybody with a cell phone is, uh, when, uh, when the police car stops, an African-American driver who's treated very differently than when I'm treated when I'm pulled over. Everybody's a publisher. We, di- say, usually when you get pulled over, they're saying, speed up, sir. The, uh, there's a lot of people behind you. <laughs> I've been known to drive a little slower. That's true. And, and, and you know, in my case, the filming is the, the, the kids in the back backseat laughing. Kind of but, it, you know, it's, there's just a whole lot of new power. Um, everyone's a publisher. Sure, Facebook's got a lot of challenges, maybe there'll be regulation, but what an incredible platform. You know, let's let's look at the positive. Remember the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge? They raised so much money for a great cause with so little input because of the ability to go viral. Uh, we're seeing really positive change agents. Uh, everybody is an activist. And... This is an exciting new world. It can be really scary. If you're on the wrong side of this, it can be highly disruptive. We're seeing corporations that get it right, really helping their brand and corporations that get it wrong getting slammed. Yeah, and people probably
1: a little bit scared too. I mean, that's the
2: other piece. I
0: think, I, I think the interesting piece on this too, especially as we move forward and start to look to the future, the interesting, the, 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 the issue to me, uh, or the interesting thing about the Parkland students is how comfortable they are in television, right? It's not only are they publishers, but they're authors, they're actors. They're very comfortable in that space and they're, they're better than many of the elected officials that we deal with uh, in Washington, D.C. And, and as we look at kind of the way technology's changing, think about what that means for the future, right? When's the last time any of our children have watched a, a, a local news show, right? I mean, it's a different thing. They watch it from their friends, and that's what they're learning about. And that's what's been able to, I think, in the Parkland case, motivate people to, to to do the gun march, but also Bruce's point, you look at some of the good and the ice bucket challenge, which was just an amazing thing that happened. And how many more times will something like that occur? It's, it's pretty effective.
1: I think it is. You know, you mentioned in uh, Update that people want change. And, you know, one thing I just questioned on that one is, don't people always want change? Like, isn't that like, uh, we we always want change, or at least in the last... You know number of years and the changes now being amplified by stuff like Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and 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 things like that I mean you know it, we we take a look at the right track wrong track uh, of the country and we're always you know in you know some version of we're going down the wrong road is it just isn't it just because people are yelling at each other more
2: you know yes and no certainly right track wrong track matters but let's 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 use elections as a barometer if you say a change election is one where the House, the Senate or the White House flips, when you take a look at more or less the start of the Cold War, call it 1954, all the way through uh, Reagan, what you found is there were 15 status quo elections and four change elections. When you say uh, through the end of the Cold War, basically, when you, when you say let's start in 1988 with the Cold War ending, U.S. is a uni, uni, unipolar leader, four status quo elections and 12 change elections. That's a significant change in how voters, at least, are reacting. And and as you know better than most, CR, our thesis is taking a look at an accelerating pace of technology, an accelerating pace of social change. We don't believe the systems, the institutions, and the policies are in place to allow most people to succeed, so whereas For decades, people believed you go, you work hard in a blue-collar job, and you could send your kids to, affordably send your kids to college, and that they could be successful in the next generation. Increasingly, we're seeing as measured by things like income inequality, recognition that A small number of well-educated, good contacts elites are killing it in this tech-enabled world, and the rest of the folks are increasingly afraid of their economic future, and are increasingly afraid of of opioid addiction, are increasingly bowling alone, to use a a line from a great book. Mm -hmm. I I think, though,
0: even within that context, while the elections may not always have been of change, you, you saw a lot of policy changes take place during that time period. So with President Johnson, you saw the civil rights movement that kind of took place and the legislation that came out of that. Certainly with Nixon, the Watergate scandal was huge and changed the way media covered uh, elected officials and covered corporations for that matter as well. And certainly Reagan changed the Republican Party into a much more conservative Type party trying to figure out how to bring in the white working class, which certainly President Trump captured uh, in his election. So while the elections themselves may not have necessarily been of change, you did see social movement and social issues change the the, the debate that took place, unlike elections now, where every single election is a change election, including Probably in 2018, we'll see the Democrats potentially gain control of the House. So th- this has been I like not common. familiar with what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> This has been a very common occurrence uh, lately.
1: So I'm going to add another piece to this, which is another hot topic, and we mentioned it a little bit in the report here, which is China. So um, they're a significant market. They're a huge uh, adversary. They are investing significantly in technology and other things. And you add to that uh, discussions of trade wars and some saber rattling from the president and others. Um, How how do we deal with that or where are we with that? I mean, I guess, David, I'll go to you on this one first.
0: Well, I I mean, I think there's a a couple of interesting points you've seen, right? You, You really have seen the agricultural community in the United States kind of step up and say, hey, look at what's going on. Um, This is affecting me uh, and my bottom line. You're seeing the auto companies kind of a little concerned about the steel tariffs kind of beyond China, but you're seeing the the steel tariff question kind of play out. I think the interesting thing about this, and we touch upon this a little bit within the DAC, is kind of what China's position was in this. I mean, yesterday, uh, a couple days ago, you saw the president of China come out and say, you know what, maybe we do have to look at this a little bit differently, or conversely, uh, the leader of North Korea heads down to Beijing on a secret chain, a train to have a conversation with the Chinese. What does that all mean? There are some very interesting questions here that are, that are taking place that are a little bit different than the true just economic piece of this debate. And, you know, it's also very interesting when you look at the, go back to the tariff point for a second, you're seeing some Democrats like Senator Sherry Brown from Ohio or Senator Casey from uh, Pennsylvania talk about why some of these tariffs are good and including a new uh, manufacturing facility open, a new steel steel facility opening up in downstate Illinois because of the tariffs. I don't know, it's kind of an interesting debate to kind of see play out. the, you know, and where does this end? It'll be kind of curious to watch.
2: Not that. You know, the, the, uh, I think we may have talked last time. I guess I have something to add. Um, <laughs> one of the best reads from last year was Graham Allison's book, Destined for War, where he observed that when you take a look throughout history of 16 examples where a new power rises to challenge an established power, they've gone to war 12 out of 16 times. Uh, it'd be really cool if this could be among the four that don't uh, that didn't go to war. And some of what we see is just that China's moved itself out of the stone ages and wants to be a modern power. That's a good thing. Uh, the challenge is that uh, like other rising powers before them, they're not always playing by fair rules. Certainly in trade, uh, the Obama administration, the Bush administration, have heard from industry and from American manufacturers, American technology companies, they're not playing fair. The challenge is there are different ways to go about addressing it, and a lot of folks are rattled right now worrying that we're taking the most aggressive possible approach, which if it succeeds, great, but if it fails, that's a problem. And and, uh, there is not certainty about what the U.S. strategy is here.
0: I I think a little bit, Bruce, though, too, it goes back to a a deck we talked about a little uh, uh last quarter, which is the whole disruptor, right? This president is a disruptor. He's taking that disruption into the trade space uh, as well. And where does that end up? Again, that's the question.
1: So uh, um, I'm going to take a slight turn here again and um, talk a little bit about what businesses in the private sector are doing. Um, Businesses in the private sector, it feels like, are having to take on roles that either were government roles or like non-traditional roles for themselves. So their employees, their customers are forcing them into places uh, to be activists. Um, I mean, I would mention the DACA discussion as a, as a big one. Um, um, some of the uh, things related to um, LGBTQ stuff um, where, you know, a company's supposed to sell widgets and now they're stepping into a social space. They're also doing things like, Sending people to the moon, <laughs> so um, which was, you know, clearly a government uh, spot. So how do you see, and Bruce, I'll go to you on this one. Like, how do you see the role of business in this world at this point?
2: Well, it's a broad question. It, vis-a-vis the role of business in the world, you know, again, yeah. it's uh, innovate, create, employ people, uh, make the world a better place. I guess in, I just mean more right. in, the, in the kind of political and, and, and the activist in space. In the social space, you're exactly right. Employees, customers, social media mobs, people are looking to CEOs to lead in a way they haven't looked at them before. In fact, our friends at GSG did a poll. 76% of Americans say CEOs have a responsibility to bring about social change on issues facing society. Um, they've got a bigger platform and more tools at their disposal than they've had before. They can litigate, so you're seeing a lot of that in stopping some of the immigration uh, executive mm-hmm. orders and, and, uh, and such. Uh, they can advocate extraordinary power wielded by business against the North Carolina bathroom law that got reversed, against the Texas bathroom law that got stopped, some religious freedom activities that got reversed in Indiana and stopped in Arkansas. Um, companies have extraordinary market power, You know, even on Fox News, uh, when Laura Ingram decides she's going to pick a fight with a with a teenager in high school, she's losing a lot of her advertisers. We'll see where it ends for her. Uh, It caused uh, O'Reilly to have to leave Fox News entirely. You know, a a different set of outrages, and then you're seeing the personal engagement. There, there was a time when uh, the engagement of CEOs. was uh, expected and CEOs thought it was part of their giving back. We kind of went through a time in the 90s and the 2000s when CEOs were were more likely to be getting beaten up uh, for either pay packages or other things. But uh, the world is looking to CEOs and CEOs are answering increasingly, engaging on issues through things like CSR and through things like policy engagement. And the real thing we're spending so much time with clients on is when's it appropriate? How do you do it? And what is your lane versus, you know, I think the ultimate silly example is Burger King decides to run an ad on net neutrality. Right. You know, and I think they were just having fun. But I mean, did they? there's no evidence that did anything for them. It's not like millennials said, well, you know, we've got our choice in saturated fat. Let's go to the guys who are good <laughs> on telecom policy. <laughs>
0: I think, you know, I pick up on a, a couple of points. I mean, CEOs are driving a lot of the social issues of our country or working prevent the president from saying some of the outlandish things he said, including uh, when you look at Charlottesville and what Jamie Dimon said after uh, the Charlottesville um, the debacle. So you, you're seeing that. I think substantively, Cr, you touched on this, and Bruce, you touched on this a little bit. Is you know we've seen the the private sector kind of take over the the space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with Moon Express, you see the the private sector thinking about new ways to play in the healthcare space with the with the Buffett, Diamond, uh, Amazon related issue. Bitcoin. What does Bitcoin mean? Kind of moving forward. Those are traditional. Government roles that we've played in and that is definitely starting to change a little bit and it's a little bit I think on on Bruce's point It's not only what customers want, but it's how do these companies continue to be able to recruit the type of employees that they want? It feels like to me the Millennials are putting a lot of pressure on their executives to play on issues that they care about so they can work for a Company that they feel good about as well. How do
1: they balance that? Um if you know, with board and quarterly marks and all the rest of those things or what is your Bruce what's your when you talk to CEOs how do you tell them to balance that because look we could we could run by every pet project that every millennial wants us to run by and we could you know spend all day long litigating you know which bathroom should be used by whom but
2: really our job is to sell widgets um, how do you balance that look, you're totally right. it's hard as hell for CEOs yeah, they're paid a lot, but CEO, pressure and turnover is as high as any point in history. Um, first and foremost, if you're not succeeding as a business, you won't be the CEO long enough to see most of your social initiatives through. So you gotta focus on that. But I think what we're finding is that these social issues are no longer a private you know, luxury of the people who are succeeding, they're an imperative. And if the C-suite is on the wrong side of some of these issues they can't recruit millennial employees if they uh cross the line you saw it with kevin plank at under armor for example you know he got in a fight with steph curry which was not helpful to under Armour's <laughs> brand i mean curry you know unless curry stops making three point shots that's the wrong guy to have on the wrong side of these things um, so it's Rather than a, uh, a fun luxury, it's a necessary part of the job. It's just yet one more dimension of the multidimensional chess game CEOs have to understand and get right. And if they get it right, it can help them with customers. It can help them with employees. It can help them with market share. It's interesting. I also kind of feel like
1: maybe it's just a little bit of there's a vacuum and people are looking for leadership anywhere. And they've decided that their elected leaders can't do some of this stuff. And so they're turning to their bosses and saying, well, you got to do it.
0: Yeah. I, you, just one point too. I think as you look into the future, that is that good for corporate America? Does does the does the favorability amongst large corporations raise back to a level where we start to trust trust our big institutions again? Right, because clearly we don't trust our institutions at this point. Government, big government's bad. Big corporations are bad. Big media's bad. How does that play out moving forward? I think it, it, that you know maybe it changes our worldview of big corporations.
1: All right, so um, let's talk to politics. <laughs> Where are we currently in the in the the House and Senate uh, politically? Um, it feels like an inter- interesting dynamic, which is that the House is really in flux, uh, and the Republicans are definitely on defense, and the Senate is actually significantly less in flux than I think people thought it would be um, but the republic but the Democrats
2: are definitely on defense there so Bruce where are we with where do you see the politics though? so uh, we tried to reduce it all to a picture worth a thousand words and so in, I actually in like our, this picture well, I'm sure you do I've, got, I've heard from several House Republican chief of staff friends who do not love you know but because real- they can't deal in the world of reality because <laughs> they're so used to President Trump that's why so uh, In an election, in a climate where five of the six last elections were change elections, you have all of the hallmarks of a wave, the generic ballot favoring Democrats by almost 8%, the presidential net approval being well below um, where you need it to be if you don't want to lose a lot of seats, Uh, the uh, enthusiasm gap's overwhelming, Democrats have uh, 50%, 52% more candidates. You start with that, and then our picture was showing that big wave heading towards the shore. Where you have two sets of Republicans. You have your House Republicans in huts along the beach. Mm -hmm. Because of the 55 seats, now 56 seats, that are most in play, 51 of them are defended by Republicans. And five of them are defended by Democrats. Not where you want to be with a tsunami coming. And you got all those retirements, which is what I mean. We are at record levels at this point, right? right? By contrast, the Senate Republicans are you know are up on the top of a cliff in brick homes protected by an extraordinary map the hill yesterday publication said of the 10 seats most likely to flip in the senate eight are defended by democrats yeah i think the, the piece on that just to kind
0: of pay attention to a little bit what bruce was talking about in terms of the speaker retiring it feels like some of that establishment money is now going to the senate right and that will help I think, put the the Republicans on the offensive a little bit more in the Senate. But in the meantime, it's just feeling like the Democrats are going to win. And Bruce touched on this with recruitment amongst House Democrats. You're seeing four and five people running in Democratic primaries and seats that Democrats haven't held in 20 or 30 years, that energy is there. And how does that play out? And how does that play out in even some of the seats that the Democrats need to defend, i.e. like places like Florida or Wisconsin, which might be slightly different than places like North Dakota and Montana, but there, there's an interesting movement that is taking place.
1: I also think to, to to follow the money piece, it'll be interesting to see does the kind of uh, Republican conservative money start to move heavier to the Senate and say we need to have a block and a, and a protection for the president? And does the Democratic money move really hard to the House that says we got to run up the score here and take advantage and try to make this wave be bigger than it is? Um, Good point. Okay, so I can't let you guys get out of here without throwing you one um, curveball. So here's this week's curveball or this episode's curveball. So if you, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Uh, so kind of this is the, you know, your your, your your non-lobbyist dream job. And I'll say this, David Castagnetti is not allowed to say manager of the Boston Red Sox. <laughs> or, or second baseman. Yeah. Shortstop is usually yeah. my choice. But. So, so if, Bruce, if you weren't doing this, what would you do?
2: Well, uh, I had great high school history teachers, really in, uh, in, incited my passion for history, incited my passion for, uh, for politics in America. And back of the brain, I've always thought, I I love what I'm doing as my career. You know, you already get the sense that I'm trying to pretend I'm a teacher anyway, and I I teach some business school classes during the year. But I'd go be a high school history teacher.
0: If I if I had to start over again, I would have li- I'd followed my passion to be a head college football coach uh, somewhere.
1: Well, you have the headset on now, so that, <laughs> that's right. I mean, it's basically the same, right? Um, exactly. All right, uh, D- David Castagnetti, Bruce Melman, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. It's always fun to have David and Bruce in here to give their update. If you are interested in taking a look at the details of uh, our quarterly update, it's available on our website at Um And if you're looking for me, the best way to get me is by email, wooters at mc-dc.com. And I look forward to seeing you next time at the intersection of business and policy, right here at 14th and G.